Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. And Shabbat Shalom to everyone watching uh, on our YouTube channel from home. We're continuing our series, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Mark. Today is part 38. And we're going to look today at the account of the two thieves who were crucified with Yeshua. So turn with me to Mark part, uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. Mark 15, beginning in verse 25. And we have it on the overhead as well. It was 9 a.m. when they crucified Yeshua. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. And those crucified with him the two thieves, also heaped insults on him. There'll be a lot more detail in a, in a parallel account uh, in the book of Luke. So we're going to turn over to Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, Golgotha, they crucified him there along with the criminals. Again, one on his right and one on his left. Yeshua said, Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly. For we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeshua answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. In this very famous passage, we have three dying men. And every one of them says something to us. So we're going to look at this passage by looking at each of these dying men and what they say. And we have it on the overhead here. Uh, The first dying man, the the impenitent thief, shows us the easiest mistake in the world to make. The second dying man, the penitent thief, shows us the hardest admission in the world to make. And the third dying man, Messiah, shows us the greatest gift in the world. So first, the first dying man, this is the first thief, thief, uh, the impenitent thief. We read about him in Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This thief clearly misses who Yeshua is. He misses the meaning of Yeshua's death. And that's actually very easy to do, to miss Yeshua. On the overhead, for two reasons. The first reason he misses Yeshua is the crowd. And the second is his own criterion for who the Messiah is. So first, the crowd. He says, aren't you the Messiah? And he mocks him. And everybody there was mocking Yeshua. Luke 23, 35. uh, The rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah, if he's the chosen one. So the rulers, the religious people, mock Yeshua. And then look at the next verse, Luke 23, 36. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
So here the, the secular people mock Yeshua, the, the, the Roman soldiers. The religious people mock him, say, this can't be the chosen one. Quoting the Messianic reference from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the goyim, to the nations. The religious rulers, they're saying, if he was really the chosen one, we wouldn't be able to do this to him. In contrast, the, the Romans had a different standard uh, for secular leadership. They said, this is a king? A, a king nailed to a tree? This can't be a king. Uh, so these groups, excuse me here. No. The, these two groups, the, the, the religious Israeli leaders and the secular Roman soldiers who don't agree on anything, agree on this. Bible-believing Pharisees and foul-mouthed, brutal, secular, pagan Roman soldiers actually agree on this one thing. Yeshua is not the Messiah. He's not the king of Israel. And they agree because of the cross. To the world, the cross is stupid. The, the cross makes no sense. Anyone dying on a cross cannot be the one. <laughs> can't be the chosen one. There's complete agreement on this. Remember the Matrix? In the Matrix, the hero, Neo, uh, is called the one. Uh, he's believed to be the Messiah, uh, who lead the human race out of oppression on, from under the machines. And at one point, one of the bad guys is, is about to kill Neo, and he says to everybody, if he's the one, if he's the Messiah, if he's the chosen one, I shouldn't be able to kill him. But I'm about to kill him. So how can he be the one? And just at that minute, the bad guy is killed. <laughs> Why? Because the movie makers agree. If Neo dies, he can't be the one. And there won't be a movie. <laughs> and nobody will watch it. And the movie makers won't make any money. <laughs> So he can't die, uh, he can't be destroyed. Everyone agrees, no true Messiah can be destroyed by his enemies. Everybody agrees that the Gospels, uh, a dying Messiah, makes no sense to the world, no sense at all. The Gospel, the idea that a weak suffering figure, a suffering servant, who can save by grace only those people who also agree that they are weak and they are sinful, that idea is foolishness to the carnal mind. The cross is completely upside down. Uh, it makes no sense to anyone. So of course, uh, uh, the thief is gonna mock uh, along with everybody else. When people who can't agree on anything agree on this, this thief, he, he's just swept along with everybody else. See how easy it is to miss the Messiah. You just have to go with the flow, go with the crowd. Conversely, to become a believer, you've got to be willing to step outside the group think, to be an independent thinker. Because there's no culture or party or group or, or socioeconomic class or ethnicity that by nature finds the cross sensible. Nobody. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the things that are despised and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom 
And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. No one, according to human wisdom, understands the cross. The cross, because the cross assumes the holiness of God, that sin must be paid for. Uh, and liberal secular cultures cannot handle this. They hate this. But the cross also assumes uh, a freeness and an openness to the grace, grace uh, and the love of God uh, that anyone, no matter how sinful you are, can access. And traditional societies, they can't handle this. Islam, for example, Islam hates th this merciful aspect of God. My own stepfather, a, a traditional Jew, uh, he hated that the Gospels allowed these so-called deathbed confessions and conversions. He thought, he thought it was so unfair that a murderer could be saved at the last minute. He considered this a perverse uh, and overly permissive doctrine. He obviously never heard about the penitent thief, the, the second thief on the cross. The bottom line, there is no society or culture or group that understands the gospel understands the cross. In the eyes of the world, it's foolishness. But we're told this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the Torah teacher? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? But since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So the crowd misses Messiah. But it's not just the crowd uh, that, that, that helps this impenitent thief uh, to miss the Messiah. Uh, it's also his own faulty criterion because he has a test for Yeshua. Do you see it? He says, in essence, I have a test for you, and if you pass this test, Yeshua, then I'll believe in you. Now remember, for three years, Yeshua has been giving people all sorts of evidence of who he is. He's performed miracles, he's raised the dead, uh, he, he's taught with power and authority, he's displayed perfect godly character, he's fulfilled hundreds of messianic prophecies, but that's not what this thief looks to. Instead, what, what's his test? Look at Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. The thief says, I'll believe in you if you get me out of here. <laughs> I have a felt need, a very urgent felt need. <laughs> I am bleeding to death and suffocating. Uh, I know all about your claims. None of that matters to me. I've got this immediate need. So here's how I know you're the Messiah, if you're the Messiah. If you get me out of this. And a lot of people, including maybe some of you here today, don't believe because you've done the exact same thing. At some point, you turn to God, uh, uh, and maybe it's at some really difficult time in your life, and you said, if you're there, God, if you're God, here's how you can show me. Get me out of this. And if he didn't do it, and you now doubt or, or, or disbelieve, you're not reading the scriptures. You're not looking to the claims of Yeshua. His fulfilling of prophecy. His vindication through the resurrection. No, none of that matters to you. You're just fixated on your immediate, urgent, felt need. 
You know, if you've ever taken in college Psych 101, you've probably read uh, Abraham Maslow, who's talked about this hierarchy of needs. And the more urgent the need, uh, the, more, the more visceral the need, uh, the more immediate the need, these absorb you. So, for example, if you're dying of hunger, you're not going to go to a seminar on the meaning of life. <laughs> and we all tend to do this. Uh, we focus on our immediate, urgent needs. This is why it is so easy to miss Messiah. Instead of standing back and being reflective and looking at the claims of Yeshua uh, and reading the text and asking the Lord, asking the Lord to show you the truth, instead all you know is that you hurt and he hasn't come through for you. And so you don't believe. Do you see how easy it is to miss Messiah? And so if you use the thief's criterion, get me out of whatever mess I'm in at the moment, you're setting yourself up for failure. If you say, Yeshua, I know you're there and that you're the one, if you get me off this cross, and we've all done this in one way or another, that's not a proper criterion. You're typically not gonna find Messiah that way because that's not a valid biblical test. When you say to the Lord, here's how I know you're God. You'll agree with me, and you'll help me, and you'll deliver me, and you'll rescue me. I have a view for what has to happen in my life, for what has to happen right now. Here's how I know you're real, Yeshua, if you accomplish it. If that's your attitude, you really don't want God. That's not a test for the reality of God. You just want a big, divine, supernatural, personal assistant. <laughs> You just want a personal assistant with superpowers that you can order about. You want a God who will be at your beck and call, who help you carry out your plans. You want a divine personal assistant, but you'll never find God that way. Never. On the overhead. If you say, here's how I know you're the Messiah, if you get me off the cross, this cross, what you're really saying is, there's a God up in heaven Yes, who, who's great enough to do all this for me, and yet can't be any smarter than me or have any plans for my life that are different from my plans. Do you see how absurd this is? If there's a God big enough to do all this for you, he also might be great enough and wise enough as your creator to know how your life ought to go in, way, in ways different from what you want. He must know things you don't know. If he's really God, then as you read in 1 Corinthians 1, he must have a plan for you beyond your wisdom and the overhead. So when you condition uh, your commitment to, uh, to the Lord and him, and him granting your wishes, what you're really saying is that you, don't, you want a God who's no smarter than you. But there is no such God. <laughs> That's not the real God, the God of the Bible. In your model, based on, on this criterion... God would have to be this big, have this big omnipotent body and this tiny little head. <laughs> this is what you would have if you wanted omnipotent God who'll do what you want, but who's no smarter than you. Because if he says, no, I'm not going to get you off the cross, then according to your criterion, he can't really exist on the overhead. Do you see how easy it is to miss Yeshua? We just go with a societal, cultural flow. 
and it'll sweep you right past the real Yeshua on the overhead. So number one, the first thief tells us how easy it is to miss Messiah, uh, to miss Yeshua. Now the second thief begins to tell us how we can find Yeshua. And the way to find Yeshua is, to, is for you to be willing to make the hardest admission in your life. Look at these two things. Uh, the second thief says, uh, Luke 23, verse 40. But the other criminal, the second thief, he rebuked the first thief. And he said to the first thief, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're being punished justly. Uh, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Yeshua, he's done nothing wrong on the overhead. The second thief is doing something that's the hardest thing possible. The hardest possible thing. First, he's recognizing the difference between God as a means and God as an end. If you're ever going to come to spiritual awakening, if you're ever going to really find Yeshua, you must see this difference. Look at these two thieves. They're both in trouble. They both have valid, urgent, felt needs. And they both turn to God. But one of them is changed and one of them is not. Every year, millions of people have problems in their life. And they turn to God. It might be very brief. They're in a crisis. Uh, they turn to God, even just briefly. Even, even people who say they don't believe in God. A crisis comes and they cry out to God. But most people are never changed. And here's why. Because you begin to really seek Yeshua you begin to spiritually awaken, like the second thief does, only when you begin to recognize the difference between going to the Lord as a means to an end and going to the Lord as an end in and of himself. Most of us start the way the first thief does. You know, the first thief says, I'll be with you if you get me out of trouble. He says to Yeshua in Luke 23, 39, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and, and us. On the overhead, he says, this is what he's saying. I'll be with you, I'll follow you, I'll believe in you if you get me out of trouble. I'm the overhead. But the second thief says, I'll stick with the trouble if I can just be with you. Notice very carefully, notice very importantly, the second thief never asks to get off the cross. He never mentions his immediate need. The first thief says, save my skin. The second thief says, save my soul. On the overhead, the first thief says, I'll be with you if you get me out of trouble. The second thief says, I'll accept my trouble if I can only be with you. And for most of us, when we come to God, we typically start, if we're honest, we typically start like the first thief. But if you begin to wake up and begin to realize your real situation and how your heart really works, then you begin to realize when you do that, you've actually done something very wicked. When you say, I'll be with you if you give me this, if you answer my prayers uh, and, 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 and handle my issues, what have you done? You've got a negotiable and a non-negotiable. What's, what's your negotiable? God. What's your non-negotiable? Your felt need. And that is your real God. Because the non-negotiable, the thing that you have to have, that's always your real God on the overhead. And, when that, and, and what begins to happen in the second thief, though, the penitent thief, and what has to happen to you in order for the penny to drop, is he begins to realize 
that instead of a change in his circumstances, what he really needs is to change on what his life centers on. Instead of asking God for the life he wants, he needs to make God his life. So for example, what you need to be praying isn't, give me the boyfriend or the girlfriend of my dreams. <laughs> Instead, what you need to be praying is, oh Lord, I need you to be such a source of life uh, and, and love in my life that I stop being so desperate and needy uh, and weird in all my relationships. <laughs> the second thief shows us you've got to start uh, um, to be more concerned with your soul than with your skin. On the overhead. The first thief, he's more concerned to save his skin than his soul. The second thief is more concerned to save his soul than his skin. He begins to see, the second thief begins to see he was using God as a means to an end. He begins to realize what's going on. So first of all, he says, I don't care about the trouble if I can just be with you, Yeshua. But even more profoundly, secondly, he says something even, even uh, that's impossible for you to admit unless God, through the help of the Holy Spirit, begins to convict you uh, and to draw you and to woo you. The second thief says, Luke 23, 41, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. By the way, very importantly, even though he's called a thief and a criminal, the other gospels clarify who they really were. These were... Uh, what we would call today uh, seditionists. Uh, Matthew and Mark call them rebels or, or insurrectionists. These were freedom fighters. These were guerrilla warriors. They, they were rebelling against Rome. So the second thief doesn't mean we're fairly and justly being put to death by Rome. No, that's not what he's saying. He would not say that. He's not saying we deserve to die by the hand of Rome for our crime of rising up against these oppressive Roman rule. No. He believed he was fighting for justice and for freedom. Then what's he talking about? He's not talking about the cross, about being crucified. He's not talking about saving his life. Rather, he's saying, we deserve, because of our sins, to be abandoned by God. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve to die. Now, a lot of secular people say, that's what I hate about religion. Religion, it's so negative. Believers are always saying, we're so unworthy. Uh, we don't deserve anything. Wrong. Nobody can say what this thief says on their own. Indeed, it's actually the opposite for religious people. Religious people have even more trouble with this than secular people. Because religious people say, that they don't say, I deserve nothing. No, rather, religious people are the ones who say, I've worked very hard. I've been very good. I've sacrificed so much. I've deprived myself of so much fun. I've stayed on the straight and narrow. Religious people are the ones who say, look how hard I've worked. Look at all I've done for the Lord. And therefore, I deserve God to answer my prayers and grant my request. God owes me. God owes me health. God owes me wealth. God owes me a good life. And you can tell you're one of these people because when things don't go well, and especially when you see immoral people seeming to prosper more than you, just like with Salieri and Mozart, you get so mad. You get so angry. 
And this shows that you're really no different from the first thief on the cross, the impenitent thief. The second thief says, Luke 23, 42, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He just asks for mercy. But the first thief demands, save us. Religious people and secular people can't handle the troubles in their life. Neither can. On the overhead. You can never come to Yeshua unless you're willing to admit that even my good deeds have been done to save myself. Even my good deeds have been a means of using God as a means to an end. To achieve my real goals. Health, wealth, happiness, uh, success, relationships. These are my real gods. And I use the Lord as a means to get them. On the overhead. Religion is using God as a means to an end. Just like the first thief. And it's not until you get to a place where you can say, when I was living an irreligious life, I was trying to be my own savior. And when I was leading a religious life, I was trying to be, to be my own savior. I deserve, therefore, I deserve to be abandoned by God. Now, admitting that isn't something you or anyone is capable of doing on your own without the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Because this is the hardest thing to admit on your own. And that it's essential if you're ever gonna get, ever gonna get this greatest gift. So in the overhead, the first thief shows us the easiest mistake to make, how easy it is to miss Messiah. The second thief shows us the hardest admission to make, that only by conviction of the Holy Spirit can we do, that we are unworthy. And the third dying man, Messiah, shows us the greatest gift in the world. Now, what's this gift? Look at Luke 23, 42. Then the second thief said, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeshua answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what is Yeshua offering? The way this verse is typically read is, because you receive me, you'll be with me in paradise when you die. Now, now yes, of course it's saying that, but that's not all that it's saying. It's not less than that, but I want to suggest it's much more than that on the overhead. Because in the Greek, the operative phrase at the heart of this sentence is not the phrase in paradise. No. What Yeshua is saying is, I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me. That's the key. That's the emphasis. The operative word here is the word with. We see the same emphasis many other places in Scripture. Look, for example, at John 17, 24. At his last Pesach Seder, Yeshua prays, Father, I want them to be with me where I am. What does that mean? Look again, John 17, 24. Next, next. Okay. Father, I want them to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you've loved me before the creation of the world. And then the prior verse, John 17, 23, then the world will know that you, Father, sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. I'm the overhead. Yeshua says, I'm going to the cross so that they can be with me and so that you, Father, can regard and love them exactly as you regard and love me. Now look at Ephesians 2, verse 5. God made us alive in Messiah, even when we were dead in our transgressions. 
and raised us up with Messiah and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Messiah Yeshua. Now notice very carefully this verse is in the past tense. God has seated us with Yeshua in heaven. Now this almost seems like a typo, doesn't it? You know, Paul, don't you really mean to say that when we die, if we're a believer, God will raise us up uh, and God will seat us with Yeshua in heavenly places? But that's not what the text says. The scriptures say that God has raised us up already with Messiah and seated us with him in heavenly places. The word of God says that as a Yeshua follower, you are seated right now in heavenly places with Yeshua. And this is what Yeshua is saying to the thief on the cross who comes to him. Now, some people object, by the way, that this thief didn't, didn't do anything. No. How does he get to heaven? But I beg to differ. Notice how all the things he does. Uh, he repents. Uh, he confesses his sin. He admits he's getting his just punishment. Uh, he puts his faith, his trust in Yeshua, asking Yeshua to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And he bears the fruit of repentance. He rebukes sin and witnesses to the other thief. Look at Luke 23, 40. But the other criminal, the second thief, rebuked the first thief. Don't you fear God? You're under the same sentence. The second thief did everything he could do in his few remaining moments of life to confess, repent, trust in Messiah, and witness to the other thief. And immediately, upon surrendering his life to Messiah... What does Yeshua say? You're with me. And the overhead. Yeshua, he's saying to the second thief, whether or not you die today, today you'll be with me where I am going. I'm about to be exalted. I'm about to be glorified. I'm about to accomplish salvation. And my promise is that you will be with me. Now, if you are a Yeshua follower, and you are having troubles today. One of the reasons you are living in defeat is because you don't know the fullness of what this means. You think all that Yeshua was saying that if you're truly his follower, uh, that when you die, someday you'll go to heaven. Yes, of course it's saying that. But he's saying so much more. Because he's saying this is true whether you're dead or not. First John 2, verse 1. My dear children... I write this to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua, the Messiah, the righteous one. An advocate is a defense attorney. Yeshua says, if you sin, you have an advocate, one who stands before the Father. You have a defense attorney. When you become a believer, Yeshua is your advocate. What does this mean? Imagine you're going to court. What do you look like to the court? What do you look like to the judge? What do you look like to the jury? You look exactly like your advocate. If your defense attorney, if your advocate is smart, you look smart. If he's eloquent, you look eloquent. Shrewd, you look shrewd. If your defense attorney wins, you win. If your defense attorney is stupid, you look stupid. <laughs> If your defense attorney loses, you lose. <laughs> the bottom line, hear me well, you're lost in your advocate. <laughs> to the court, you look exactly like your advocate. He represents you. 
In the same way on the overhead now, the minute you become a Yeshua father, follower, you don't only get your sins washed away in some generic sense, and now you're on your own. No. You are now forever with Yeshua. He's your advocate before the Father. You're seated with him in heavenly places. And when God looks at you, he sees your exalted, risen head. He sees the exalted and risen and ascended Savior. He treats you as if you've accomplished everything that he has accomplished. And what it means, and that's what it means when Yeshua says to this thief, today you will be with me. On the overhead. And if the thief asks him, how can this be? Yeshua says, because I'm with you now. I'm in your, I'm in your place so that you can be in my place. I'm down here receiving what you deserve so that you can get what I deserve. I'm utterly with you. I'm getting it all so that you can be with me in paradise. I'm going to paradise. And whether you die today or not, you're going to be with me. Now, what are some applications here? Do you know what it is to be a Yeshua follower? Uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones used to ask people, are you a believer? And if they said to him, well, I'm trying, he knew they did not understand the gospel. When you say, I'm trying, yeah, I know I need to be a better person. Uh, I'm trying to be better. If that's your uh, understanding, you deserve all the insecurity and anxiety and ups and downs that you're experiencing. This week, we had a good week. Last week, you had a bad week. This week, you feel pretty good about yourself and about your relationship with God. Last week, you felt pretty bad about yourself and your walk with the Lord. It's your fault. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, he knows that if you're asked, if you're a Yeshua follower and you say, I'm trying, you have no idea what it means to be a Yeshua follower on the overhead. Because to be a Yeshua follower is to have a position, to have a status, to have a standing. It's not an achieved, but rather a received status. It's to be lost in your advocate. It's to be glorious in the eyes of God, the only eyes that count. Luke 23, 34, we read, Yeshua said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, when, when someone hurts you, your immediate, uh, visceral, instinctive, natural reaction is anger and resentment and retaliation. It's to assume the worst of them, of their motives and their intent. But look at Yeshua on the cross. His immediate reaction to this horrific, deadly torture and humiliation is to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeshua says, Father, they're killing me. They're spearing me. They're jeering me. They're mocking me. They're abandoning me. They're denying me. They're betraying me. But they don't understand what they're doing. This is the perfect person. The only perfect person. This is a person being perfect in his love. And he says, I'm here taking what you deserve so that God can treat you as if you've led my life of perfect obedience and perfect submission to the Father. And so now he'll treat you as I deserve. I'm being treated on the cross as you deserve so that you can be treated as I deserve. 
so that you can be treated as if you've led this perfect life and died this perfect death. And if you've prayed for and blessed your enemies, as if you have prayed for and blessed your enemies, even while they're killing you. Now, that's a very hard standard to live up to. And one indication that, that you don't live up to it is that many of you can't take criticism. Uh, and you can't take anybody mistreating you or snubbing you, uh, and you're filled with self-doubt and insecurity. Yes, you acknowledge the Lord loves you in some general way, but you have no concept that he's actually with you. You have no concept that you're actually seated with him, raised with him, ascended with him, right now, in heavenly places. And think of this. If you're at the right, if, you, if Yeshua is at the right hand of the Father, and you're seated with Yeshua, what does that mean? That means you're at the right hand of the Father. But you don't believe it. And you don't see it. That's the reason you act in the way you're acting. That's the reason why you're doing the things you're doing. Let's say you're a billionaire, and you have three $10 bills in your pocket, and you're at a restaurant, and you tip the waiter one of the $10 bills. And then later on in the day, you look in your pocket, and you notice you only have one $10 bill left. So either you gave the extra $10 bill mistakenly to the waiter, or you dropped it somewhere. Are you going to freak out and go crazy? Are you going to try and find this waiter and see if he got a $20 tip from you? Or are you going to retrace your steps, get down on your hands and knees, look for the $10 bill all over the sidewalk for this missing, tent, this missing money? No, you're a billionaire. In the same way, are you a Yeshua follower? Are you unable to sleep at night because someone snubbed you? Are you down in yourself, beating yourself up? Are you feeling unworthy? You can't get over the guilt from some old sin you've already repented of? If so, you're like this billionaire, down on your hands and knees, crawling through the streets of Dallas, looking for this $10 bill. What's the matter with you? Remember when Yeshua sent out the 72 disciples? They had a great day in ministry. In Luke 10, 17, they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. What does Yeshua say? He says, okay, you had a good day. Then in Luke 10, 20, he says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice, uh, rejoice not you're able to cast out a demon. Maybe tomorrow you won't be able to. But rejoice that you're seated with me in heaven. Rejoice that the verdict is already in and that verdict says not guilty. Rejoice that you've been adopted. Rejoice that you're with me. That's what it means to be in Messiah. That's what Yeshua was doing on the cross. That's Chaim. Do you see this? Do you understand this? Do you live this out? Second application. I don't care who you are or what you've done or how late it is in your life. You've heard of an 11th hour conversion? This is an 11 hour, 59 minutes, and 59 second conversion for, for this thief on the cross. In Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, they tell us that both thieves at first uh, screamed and yelled and hurled insults at him. Both of them. Mark 15, 28 says, this was to fulfill the scriptures that says he was numbered with the transgressors, quoting Isaiah 53. 
Yeshua is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, numbered with the transgressors. But then something happens to this second thief. The one who suddenly now becomes the penitent thief, who will now be with Yeshua forever in paradise. Probably his conversion started when on the cross he heard Yeshua say in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Because ultimately Yeshua's suffering and his crucifixion was part of God's plan. Even Satan didn't realize it. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The thief, he sees all this and he turns to Yeshua and he says in Luke 23, 42, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Yeshua accepts him in. It says, Luke 23, 43, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And we see, by the way, a Torah picture of these two thieves, one saved, one lost, in the story of Joseph, interpreting the dreams of the baker and the wine steward, the cupbearer in the prison. The baker is killed, the cupbearer is freed. You see the same picture in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep on one side, the goats on the other, like the two thieves. Uh, and so for the penitent thief, even at the 11th hour, Yeshua says, you'll be with me forever. How can this be? Because he is a God of grace. I don't care what you've done. If you repent and you commit your life to Yeshua, he will forgive you. He will receive you. This thief is a great example of this. Third, final application. If you understand and receive what Yeshua did on the cross, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Do you think it's just a coincidence that all three of these characters in this account are dying? Here's a penitent thief. Here's the unpenitent thief. Here's Yeshua. They're all dying. And that's a little parable about you and me. Everyone in this room is dying. And I know you young, you young people hate it <laughs> when older people say this. <laughs> but it's true. In a very little while, relatively speaking, we're all going to be dead. We're all dying. We see the penitent and the unpenitent dying man on the cross on either side of Yeshua. And so the question is, what kind of dying man or woman are you? You see, you're dying. Which kind which of these two are you? Do you have something when you actually face death that will enable you to say, along with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Hallelujah. And you can say this along with Paul if you're a Yeshua follower. And if you realize that if so, you're already with Messiah. And therefore, already in paradise with him. You're already there. Spare not, O death. Do your worst. You only make me better than before. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I'd like the music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, today for the account of these two thieves. Lord, help us not to miss you like the first thief. He went with the crowd, where the cross was, was foolishness. 
And he conditioned belief on you, Yeshua, giving him what he wanted, meeting his needs. He just wanted you to save his skin more than save his soul. Because Yeshua, to him, you were only a means to an end, not the end. Lord Yeshua, help us to be rather like the second thief, the penitent thief. He wanted you more than he wanted even deliverance from the cross. He wanted you to save his soul more than to save his skin. Because for him, you were not merely a means to an end. You were the end in and of yourself. You were the ultimate goal and reward and desire and love. Yeshua, help us to just want you, to be with you. Let that be the chief end and goal and aim in our life, to be with you. Lord, I admit I have no merit on my own. I deserve nothing but your judgment. So I throw myself on your mercy. And I thank you, Lord, for your promise that if I repent, that if I trust in you, you will be with me forever and ever. And that even now I am seated with you in heavenly places. You, Yeshua, are my advocate. You're my defense attorney. And my life is hidden in you. Thank you, Lord, for taking what I deserve so that I can be clothed in your righteousness that you deserve. And I can therefore say, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? For I am with you, Yeshua. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.